0: is ContraZoom.
1: Where we go back and forth about film.
0: I'm Dakota Arsenault.
1: And I'm Rachel Ho.
0: Right now Fantasia Festival in Montreal is going on and we got the chance to conduct a few interviews to talk to some filmmakers about their movies and really excited to share this. Uh, The first one that we did was with the director Kelsey Egan of the South African film Glass House. This is Uh, a thriller that plays with many different horror genres as well. Very interesting film that I think a lot of people should check out. It's basically like the story of a pandemic. I I don't know. People can imagine what that would be like uh, where a virus is transmitted through the air. I know very confusing right now you probably don't know what I'm talking about and people are infected unfortunately the side effect is that they start to lose their memory because of this and we get introduced to this family a woman and her four children and a stranger comes upon their house and they have to figure out is the stranger dangerous or not but we got the chance to talk to Kelsey and it was a really fun interview I I really enjoyed it what about you
1: yeah I really enjoyed it she's uh, she gave us a lot of insight into the movie, but I also loved how she talked about um, like, she talked a little bit about, you know, South African cinema and and the struggles with filmmaking um, not in Hollywood. So I, I, I thought it was really great. And yeah, the movies, the movies, I, I echo what Dakota said, the movie's really well done. It's a unique movie, even though it sounds like it's something that we've seen. Um, it's not like it's, it's definitely done in a different way. And yeah, I like the folk horror element of it mm-hmm. as well. But that's kind of my thing. I, I enjoy the folk horror.
0: And uh, it's sort of interesting. I think we talked about it off air, but uh, th- I think this is the type of movie where the stars in it are going to really break out. And so people are mm-hmm. probably later going to look back and be like, oh, what did they do before they were super yeah. famous? And they'll, they'll come to this and like really be blown away by, by how talented everyone is involved in this film.
1: Definitely. All the performances too across the board and they have, so it's, it's, it's got three sisters varying in age and one of them is quite young. And I'm always pretty fascinated about uh, child actors and their performances because we've seen some pretty bad ones, but we've seen some pretty good ones as well. And I, I would definitely put this in the latter category as being pretty good.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I would almost sort of equate this to to something like Winter's Bone, where we get to see a, a young Jennifer Lawrence in a really strong standout yeah. breakout film, or even some of the stuff that like Florence Pugh was doing before she had her big breakout in Midsommar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, one question I realized now, one question I, I did want to ask her was because the accent that they use in the in the movie is kind of a, I guess what they would call transatlantic accent like it's slightly British but not full-on British and I was like that it's an interesting concept to me to use why did they pick that you just reminded me because you're mentioning Florence Pugh
0: Mm, I didn't notice that
1: (laughs) really like because I assumed when it was South African I was like oh they'll use South African accents and they did not at all there was just kind of a more I guess what we would consider like a generic American accent Mm -hmm. um they use kind of a generic British accent like just a really flat British accent that is not regional to any particular part of the uk
0: interesting well uh without further ado uh people will now get the chance to listen to our interview with kelsey egan
2: once upon a time
0: there was a girl
2: she came upon an enchanted castle made of glass only people who remembered their names could enter there we gather in thanks for our sanctuary from the Shred. In a world of madness, we have found order. What are you doing? Here, we are safe. You have welcomed a threat across our threshold.
0: We are now joined by Kelsey Egan, who is the director and co-writer of the new horror drama film Glasshouse. Is Kelsey's debut directorial feature film after being involved in just about every aspect of filmmaking before coming all the way from Cape Town, South Africa. Welcome, Kelsey.
3: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. We're very excited to talk to you. We both really enjoyed your film, Glass House. But uh, I'm curious, as I said, this is your first feature film, and it's having its world premiere almost 8,000 miles away from South Africa. Does it feel weird not being able to attend Fantasia Fest in person?
3: Well, I'm not going to pretend I'm not disappointed because Fantasia (laughs) is awesome. (laughs) I would have loved to have an excuse to hop on a plane, Um, but it was a responsible thing to do to keep it virtual. And I've really been impressed by Fantasia's outreach and all of the fun, like online activities they've set up and like the virtual, like video game, old school video game style, like exploratory um, section open to all the festival goers. I think that's really rad. So, it, it's, it's been cool to participate regardless. Then um, hopefully I'll have an opportunity someday in the future to actually rock up.
0: <laughs> Fingers crossed.
3: Yeah, someday.
0: <laughs> so this film contains uh, several taboo subjects. I'm not going to reveal any spoilers here. But how important was it for you to make your actors feel safe on set and in your hands with dealing with the subject matter?
3: That's a great question. I mean, that was huge. Um, most of our cast, I mean five out of six of our actors are, are, are babies. (laughs) They're so young. (laughs) They're like, they're 24 and under. Um, and, and this was a very intimate, very intense, almost claustrophobic shoot considering the setting, um, and the premise as well. And, and you're very right that the, the topic, um, and some of the subject matter is a bit provocative, uh, so we had a lot of conversations, um, individually with the cast and, and, be, and talking through certain scenes before we discussed it together as a, as a group or with scene partners. And then we did a lot of rehearsing as well, um, and, and talking through comfort levels and how everyone wanted to approach everything in an authentic way, um, that they felt was true to their characters, but that everyone was, you know, maximizing comfort level. And I, and it was a really nice, um, It was actually really nice because everyone, everyone was really keen to push the boundaries and, and, and felt really passionate about the characters that they were playing and the, the authenticity or the honesty of the world in which they existed that meant that the topics that could be considered taboo for the world of these characters wasn't and coming at it with that innocence and openness. Um, and they all really did that in their And I think that honestly, all the performances are really courageous because they approached it from that perspective of in the world in which they exist. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. And I I really admired that. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, they're so young and they really did many brave things on this shoot. I'm very proud of
1: them. Um, going back to what you were talking about, about having such a claustrophobic set, you know, like I was very impressed with the idea of, you know, you used a... Is it the the Pearson Conservatory in uh, yeah, in yeah. South Africa? And the thing that I love about it was, it's it's obviously glass, like it's a massive glass structure, <laughs> yep. but yet you're able to create it, like to genuinely create a really really claustrophobic environment. So I know your production designer is a Carrie Van. I might Carrie
3: Van Lotherenfeld. He's a genius. Lillianfeld. Yes. Oh yes. yeah. It's
1: you know I thought I was wondering what what aspects of did you guys focus on in trying to create the claustrophobic um, environment there? Like, was was there particular elements that you made sure to add um, into it? Or again, because it's it's a glass structure, you know, it's open.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, honestly, one of our biggest concerns is that we were worried that it would feel too small even. Mm, So a lot of the design, and this was a part of Carrie's Genius, but the layering of different fabric and and the use of the space to create the illusion of it being even bigger than it actually is. Um, for example, like we we set up in the world the story that there's three wings branching out from the chapel, the central living space. In reality, there's only two. So we we were referring like to the east wing and the west wing. It got confusing really quickly, but we had to throw that out and be like, okay, mother's wing, which is the same thing as children's wing. And then there's the other wing, which is like more the gardening wing where the bird's nest was, the bird's nest wing where Evie hides out. So, um, and the mothers, we basically started the shoot with mother's wing. And then we did a complete set, like flop over to children's wing and turn, transform mother's wing into children's wing. And that required like replanting all of the flowers, like completely changing the look of that that w- wing in real life. Um, but uh, th- the claustrophobia, I have to say, was easy to achieve because we really were <laughs> on top of each other. That was, that was true to life. And oftentimes we were trying to create the illusion of it being a little bit more spacious than it actually was. But I think also in terms of capturing it on camera, the anamorphic lenses really helped because they create a sense, you know, where they pull focus to the center of the frame. And there's this like, fade off on the edges and the sort of things morph and breathe in this, in this way that's quite intoxicating and can be quite claustrophobic similarly to, to the space. And then in the costume design, we were really focusing on the idea that they're in this, this glass house that's very hot. Um, so having these loose breathing, um, wardrobe, um, was important to us to sort of just like capture the feel of this place. Um, I mean, the crew was sweating. We were very hot (laughs) when we were tuning. So, and I was like, I don't want to kill the cast guys. (laughs) Trying to make them comfortable Um, because we'd put them in like a ton of layers. Like it would have been a disaster. Um, It's not like the botnets weren't difficult, or challenging enough. Um, So, I think a lot of ways it was this like life mirroring art and vice versa scenario. Um, So, I, I I'd like to pretend that it was like super challenging to create the claustrophobia. And we were genius in creating it. It was just like how it was. It wasn't it wasn't a big stretch.
1: That's amazing.
0: Well, when you were casting this film, you needed to find three young women who could pass as sisters and be able to have the rapport that a family dynamic offers, which could include things like bickering and also tenderness. What was the casting process like to find Jessica, Anya and Kitty, who play the three girls?
3: I'm not going to say it was easy but we were really lucky. We had a, like over 120 self tapes per character if I remember correctly or at least for wow. b and Evie, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and look and it was what was really difficult is that there were a lot of brilliant performances. Like there's a lot of talent in South Africa and there's um we had tons of options. What what made it so it was quite a challenging casting process, but what narrowed it down really was finding the believability between the sisters and the connection and also who captured sort of the, the, the oppositional force between B and Evie most effectively in terms of the grounded pragmatic, um, sort of underdog sister in, in, in Evie's character and the more effervescent dreamy, um, Um, but still fierce and rebellious equality is found in B. Um, Mm -hmm. And when, and when we saw Anya's tape, I mean, Anya just blew us away. Like she really, from the moment she did her first tape, she just inhabited everything we'd envisioned for Evie. And then the challenge was finding a B that matched her. And ironically, Jess is blonde, but she had Mm -hmm. her hair dyed for another job. And we hadn't found um, the right like we had a number of very strong B auditions, but we hadn't found a believable option to be opposite Evie that had that sort of oppositional energy, but still that strength um, and forcefulness because they they they're very much sisters so that they share the force in them right they're both really strong characters just they go on divergent paths in their strength of character. And, and when, and B also like Jess also put herself on tape. That was something she, she did that meant a whole lot to us. She was like, no, if I'm going to be considered, I want it to be on equal, like it was on equal footing with everyone. Like everyone went on tape, everyone competed for the role. And she also went on tape and she just captured the energy that we needed to oppose what Anya brought to Evie in a beautiful way. And then Kitty was a find. I mean, Kitty, this was her first feature film. Um, and she played Matilda and done this whole tour as Matilda as a stage <laughs> wow. actress, but this was her first feature. And I mean, again, it was like one of those things where you just have like just this massive raw talent and she just captured like the cheekiness and the sort of like, I don't want to say creepy, but <laughs> <that> <laughs> the, the sort of like the energy from, 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 cause we really wanted to fight against like, Oh, cute cute baby daughter like there are sort of parallels to little woman in the story but we sort of wanted to push against that and subvert that as well so um i mean daisy is like endlessly likable but she's also very much a real person in her own individual personality and kitty really captured that
0: and a little way too into knives
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah yeah Uh, it's so funny you say that about Kitty playing Matilda because while I was watching it, I thought she kind of reminds me a little bit of Mara Wilson who
4: oh, obviously yeah.
1: was in was in the movie. And I thought that, but I was like, oh, it's just a little girl. Like, you know, maybe that's what I'm equating it with. It's no, just
3: two yeah, young actresses, you but that's, yeah. that's really
1: funny. Um, yeah. So carrying on from kind of the casting choice, but specifically looking at the fact that they're sisters, I really took to this film because I like... Science fiction that deals with trauma, or rather, I should say, trauma themes that use science fiction to their advantage, um, and and kind of explores that side of humanity because um, it's it's a it's a great genre to do it in. I think. Um, I completely
3: agree.
1: And I saw this great uh, Canadian movie. Actually, it's called Between Waves, and it's it's also deals with trauma and it uses science fiction. And I was talking to the director um, of that movie and talking to her about how it comes from a real feminine um, ass or a female perspective because, you know, men and women, we kind of, we deal with grief and trauma in different ways. And I thought you're in Glass House. It's, it's pretty cool because the stranger who is the only man or other than the brother, um, he he's very kind of fight or flight. He's very survivalist, um, mm. does what he has to do to just keep going. B and Evie are more emotional in that they're looking at preserving memories, suppressing memories. And then you have um, the mother who looks at it in a very obviously maternal way. She's a very, she's the, the protector of everybody. And everything that she does to me is very, motherly, like it's pr- it's protecting your kids at all costs. Um, yeah. Not to say that fathers don't do that, but there, there's there's a kind of an aspect to the performance that is that, I was wondering, was there ever a consideration of looking at Glasshouse through the perspective of if it were a family of brothers, brothers plus one Great sister, question. and how would that have changed the dynamics? Would the characters be completely different or um, would they more or less kind of stay relatively the same, but maybe a bit more Uh, with a masculine perspective?
3: That is an amazing question. Wow, you guys rock. Um, (laughs) So this is the first time I've been considering this. So like, bear with me as I muddle through it. Um, I do fundamentally believe, and maybe this is a human belief rather than a filmmaker belief per se, but I do fundamentally believe that we're all people and we're not mm-hmm. all that different. Although of course, um, gender and perception of gender, gender gender identity and culture and, you know, societal um, factors in terms of what is accepted behavior does impact us and how we identify and also engage with the world. So I would, I would say it would be, and this, I hope this isn't a cop out answer, but I would think it would be a combination of both. I think you'd still get a scenario in which two brothers one would feel fiercely that preserving memory was essential to survival and and protecting the family and another would be able to cope less well with an emotion with a with a certain trauma and rather pursue escapism similar to the, to the way one destructively pursues drug or alcohol addiction to mm, yeah. as a distraction from trauma. And I think we see that in men as much as we see that in women. Um, it simply sometimes expresses in a different way, but we still see that t- sort of tactic. So I think it's a very human thing that everyone has different coping mechanisms regardless of, of gender, gender identity. Um, but I do think that if we had cast it that way or or had it be all brothers and had a female stranger enter the world, the way in which she would have been perceived as in danger rather than a potential threat would have been different. Mm. And I think that in, in some ways it could have been quite subversive because if you have a woman, you know, stranger that's uncaptured and unchanged, like, oh my God, what a disaster. What's going to happen yeah. <laughs> to this girl, right? But it would, and it would be quite interesting if then she manages to manipulate her way into being the threat. <laughs> like, that would be a cool movie. Let's do Glasshouse 2. and do it that way. It would be very clever. Um, but it definitely would have changed the, the, the sort of like, oh, feeling throughout the film of never quite knowing, or at least this is what we were trying to achieve. You can tell me if we were successful. But never quite knowing whether or not the stranger was trustworthy. And like, at times being able to empathize with him and him being freaked out by this family being kind of cr- like royally creepy, but at other times being like, wait a second, maybe he is like the threat that he, he that he seems to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know if a female energy, um, stereotypically would have created that same feeling, um. And I know from from Emma and I, my co-writer, who's absolutely amazing and this movie wouldn't exist without her, like we wanted to tell a story of sisters and women as three-dimensional characters that were people first before they were female. And this world gave us an opportunity to do this in a sort of like very... Blunt, raw way because they're living in a world where modesty and taboo doesn't really exist. They haven't been shamed for their sexuality. They haven't been, you know, told that certain things are not done if you're a woman, right? So you see this very unbridled, fearless ownership of instinct and urges and desire and um, preference and want. And I and I thought we thought that was a really liberating space to play in. Mm.
1: Definitely, and I did get the kind of the uneasiness from the stranger of can you trust him? Can you not? Is he a threat? Oh, thank God! Definitely, you get oh, that because yeah. there, there, was one point I thought too. I was like, he just wants to leave. Like he just wants to get out of here <laughs> yeah. and like let the man go. Like, <laughs> he doesn't let let want to poor go, man here. go. Yeah, just let him go. Like he doesn't want it. He doesn't mean any harm. <laughs> he he just happened to stumble across. But then as the movie progresses, you definitely get the feel of well. You know, maybe he doesn't want to go. Maybe he's doing it. But then, yeah, it, it's it's definitely a wild ride, I think, for The Stranger.
3: Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I think it's a process for him, too, of like yeah. what he wants and seeing an opportunity and then seeing how far he can take it. Right. But I, I, have, I have spoiler questions to ask you guys, but I'll wait until later. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so this film seems to be... Sp- at least on the surface, influenced by COVID-19 as the virus in this film is an airborne one with the current pandemic, getting a a brief shout out on a shot of a magazine cover early on the film. Did you and your co-writer, Emma, look at the pandemic and imagine what it would look like if it was more intense and sort of a scripted story around that?
3: Not really. (laughs) I mean, like, yeah, I I know it. it, look, we wrote these scripts over lockdown, like I was on my balcony in lockdown alone, and Emma was like my family. I saw her every day on Zoom, her and my other writing partner, my producer, Greg, who's also just the most wonderful, gifted human. And, you know, so, so the reality of COVID and the pandemic obviously was very much on our mind when we were writing. But if I'm perfectly honest, as a genre writer, this is the type of theme and the type of um, dystopian universe that I've been writing about and thinking about for years. So in this weird way, COVID happening was suddenly life imitating art, but art I was already really familiar with. So it felt really strange because it was like, wait a second, now real life is mirroring subject matter that I've been writing for years Mm -hmm. in this really messed up surreal way. And and when we were conceptualizing Glasshouse, what was interesting about it is that my other action sci-fi project also has toxic a toxic compound in Earth's atmosphere, and so our bigger concern was not oh no people are going to think this is like COVID. It was like oh no am I, I going to be seen as a lazy writer because I use this device? Twice? <laughs> <laughs> but but that project I'd I'd written the first draft of the script eight years ago, so I know that on the surface it seems like this was all COVID inspired, but the reality is we came up with the concept in February before lockdown and then lockdown happened and we'd got the greenlit to write it a week before lockdown. So it was like everything with COVID ramped up and got more and more serious as we were already sort of through the process. And then, yeah, I mean, I obviously it, 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 it was on our mind. was something that we, that was very close to home and, and, and that, claustrophobia and that feeling of being trapped i would say probably found its way into the work certainly but the toxic air as a device been there done that <laughs> i think and it's not it's... like sci-fi films hadn't already done it as well i mean oh like absolutely. It's like yeah. everyone re-watching contagion yeah. you know, during the first lockdown <laughs> I'm like oh my god it's like those sci-fi writers they're smart people
1: Mm-hmm. I was just going to say there's so many movies now you look back on them and you we watch them in a completely different lens now because of yeah. everything that's happened and that's yeah. it's kind of fascinating to me like I've been really interested in in like filmmakers who old picture or old you know not old but scripts that you've written before covid um the way that they change now and and totally. I'm really yeah I'm really interested to see how the pandemic is going to shape different filmmakers especially the younger ones you know the ones yeah. who are in uh, who are still in school right now and and they're learning and and becoming interested in film and i mean this is an, undeniably it's going to shape their attitude quite a bit towards their storytelling and, and i can't and- i can't wait to see it like i can't wait to see what people come up with
3: well it's really interesting because like you look at science fiction as a i mean i I've always, as a child, that sci-fi was what impacted me and left Mm -hmm. the greatest mark on me because it it led me to interrogate society and why things are the way they are and sort of humanity's tragic flaws, right? And -hmm. where we consistently seem to make the same missteps that lead us along this path of (laughs) destruction. But now to actually be living that and witnessing those same like missteps still occurring. That's where the surreal or the meta experience comes in. And it's like, as a creator, can we now be doing work that not only sh- like shines a light, a spotlight on that, but actually finds tools or suggestions of how to address it in a productive way. Because it's all well and good to shine a spotlight on the problems. But are we going to be as as a creative, con- collective conscious, start finding solutions? Because I'm looking at some of the problems we're facing now, even with, you know, um, vaccine hesitance versus like the ethics of forcing vaccination through manipulation <laughs> tactics, and, and I mean, I, I'm all pro I'm pro vaccination, but I can't say I don't understand mistrust of institutions because yeah. it's not like people haven't been burned um, in the past. <laughs> so, so, so how do you marry that problem? Where do you find the solution? And I, I can't say I have any answers, but that's the work I'm interested in now of like, like cutting to the jugular there.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's like, I don't know if you saw online um, like, It was just yesterday, I think, people started talking about the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. And they're saying like, they're like, because apparently I think in there they were using, I haven't seen that movie in ages, but they were using the measles vaccine to treat something else and it turned Uh, people into zombies yeah
3: that's not great yeah and people (laughs) were watching
1: yeah and people were like see it's gonna turn you into a zombie Uh, and then the director uh, of the movie had to come out and be like guys I made it up it's a movie (laughs) like this is made up
3: that's really really awkward and you know fun fact that was like one of the first films I ever worked on I was a PA on that film in New York wow that's so cool yeah I have various fun memories of being on that set but but um and locking up fifth avenue and all the new yorkers (laughs) were just thrilled with us for doing that but but um but uh yeah i think that and that that sort of haziness or fuzziness between fact and fiction is um sort of the reality that we're wading through right now and i always thought truth was was a was a more concrete accessible thing Than it seems to be now. And I think, you know, going back to your previous question of how did the pandemic impact your writing process, maybe I'm not giving it enough credit because as we were writing, it became very clear that, like, you know, B has her version of reality that she adopts for survival, that she wants to be real because it enables her to live with herself. And B has her version of reality, which she holds as truth that she makes sure that she preserves. Which version best serves them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know it's an individual choice and, and then it's like uh, to the extent to which truth matters right it, it, it's 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 i don't know it's a scary topic
1: i quite <laughs> like that to the extent to which truth matters very applicable in our current state. yeah
3: of the world. <laughs> very. i mean i think it matters a lot but there's an argument <laughs> for the other side as b as b shows you know interesting
0: So despite the film containing numerous influences of of horror subgenres like psychological, body horror, folk horror, and sci-fi and much more, the film seems to maintain more of a a simmering intensity approach, never really giving the audience a full-on screamer moment, I guess if I would call it that. How did you balance all of these styles of horror while making, in my opinion, I guess what I would call an erotic family thriller, which hopefully isn't giving away too much?
3: (laughs) I have to say it's been such a pleasure um, witnessing everyone try to describe the genre of this film. (laughs) But a lot of you have done a better job than we have. So I'm I'm usually like, you (laughs) guys are killing it. That is amazing. Um, It was a really, it was, look, it was a really interesting process. I I mean, having an epic location and an incredible cast obviously was um, integral to pulling it off. But I think we wanted... We wanted the viewers to feel the experience of life in the glass house and the perspective of these women, you know, like to sort of like taste that experience as as authentically as we could. And I find with the horror genre and scream tactics, you can generally see those coming. They're tropes, they're devices, mm-hmm. and it didn't feel appropriate to the to this simply because that's not really true to life, that type of experience. like it's a it's an it's a ride. Horror takes you on a ride for the fright factor. And we wanted we wanted to sort of explore the psychological realms a little bit more, where things unfold at a slightly different pace, that they aren't necessarily scream or fright moments. It's more perception and illusion and reality shifting. And that's where the more claustrophobic, more—I mean, like to the, the try to create—and and we worked on this a lot in the edit, but to try to like slowly build intensity and tautness and energy throughout the film in in raising intensity, and it was that was definitely a pacing thing to keep that tension, but in a way that felt identifiable and relatable as an an experience that you could relate to of finding something out about someone that you hadn't realized before or questioning yourself or or suddenly thinking that the reality that you'd bought into or married into as a narrative that you could get behind had completely turned upside down um and I think we wanted to take the audience along on that ride in a way that felt like an inner inner journey if that mm-hmm. makes sense
0: no, no, that makes complete sense. I think while you're watching it, I never, I'm not a big horror movie guy. I scare far too easily for for, for a lot of horror films, as Rachel can attest to. But while watching this movie, the whole time, you're very, you're, you're such a level of unease where you're not sure where the story is going to go to next. And because you take the story into such wild extremes, you're constantly on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next. How is this all going to play out? And there's also a bit of a level of confusion where as an audience member, you're not quite sure what any of the characters are really thinking or planning next. So that really does add a certain element of thrillerness to it, I guess, if you want to call it that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we wanted we didn't want the answers to be apparent. Like, I, I mean, I personally, I love films where you're just catapulted into the world and you have to figure everything out. And it was really important to us that we sort of that we let the world build around the characters in such a way that the audience had to piece together and come up with their own opinion on on these dynamics and what was real and all of that. But I, I will say it was a really um, probably most challenging storytelling element of, of this process was getting that balance right because you also don't want to frustrate the viewer. And you you don't want to hold back information in a way that's obnoxious. And you, you want to have enough context that you can piece things together, but still not have like time the reveals in such a way that it can be a satisfying viewing experience. And one of the things we did in in with our test audience and in the in the post-production f- process is, for example, like. I think Amazon. My style is generally like we have we we get, give give our audience a lot of credit. We assume that the viewer is far more intelligent than most films give people credit for. <laughs> so we'll be like really sparse on stuff, and it was mm-hmm. really cool because our test audience came back being like, okay, but we really wanted to know this. We really wanted to know this, and we're like, yeah. Okay, (laughs) so then with 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 ADR and edit, we actually listened to that and we seeded in one or two points a little bit clearer, a little bit sooner based on feedback we got. Um, And I'm really I'm actually really grateful to the test audience because we were so close to the story. We thought certain things were obvious before they actually were. And only through these completely objective viewers being like, no, 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 we only got it there. And we're like, are you sure? We <laughs> thought you were going to get it here. You know what I mean? And, and and so it was very much a collaborative process of being like, oh, OK, all right, well, let's make sure you get it here um, mm-hmm. so that the payoff can can land more effectively later on. Um, so we were definitely like, you know, that that whole idea of you make a movie three times, you know, in the in the in the writing, the script while shooting. And then in post was 100% true for us all with the same goal in mind, but to be as effective as possible with the, the creation of this tension and piecing things together as you go.
1: I lo- I, I'm a huge fan of horror, um, specifically folk horror. And I love that in this one, like, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you, you added more. Cause I still think that there's quite a bit of ambiguity in a very good way like there's a there's a lot of space for an audience to kind of build their own legend or myth about mm. what led to them even being in there in the first place like what happened there and and what's going to happen in the future and i that was one thing i loved about it was this idea that you could genuinely build your own folklore like legend out of this
3: uh, a yeah. premise
1: like this this premise okay. and i i think that was brilliant um okay. Switching gears a little bit away from Glass House. Now, you're a uh, South African. And before we got on here, you were talking very passionately about South African cinema and having it be more prominent on the world stage. And it's definitely something I think Canadian filmmakers can empathize with as well, because being so close to the States, um, our talent generally goes south uh, before they, they do much yeah. at home. Yeah. Um, but looking at South African cinema in general, you guys are having an incredible year this year, <laughs> like in particular, yeah. you know, I thought like Gaia was premiering at South by Southwest, yeah. Five Tigers at Sundance, um, the movie Mafia, which also stars Hilton yeah, yeah. Hoser, yeah. Um, yeah. had its US release earlier this year and everything has been received like incredibly well. Everybody's had just glowing things to say about it. So I was wondering if, I know I'm putting you a little bit on spot because I didn't give you any time to prepare for this, but... Okay. Are there any South African movies, like definitive, old, new, that you would want um, our audience, an international audience, to be aware of that maybe it didn't come across in in North America or in Europe or wherever else?
3: Interesting. Okay, so a couple of things that I just want to clarify. I don't know if you've noticed. I mean, I'm sure you have, but my accent is wrong.
1: Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything if I was yeah. a little rude. No, I
3: think yeah. let's flag that because that <laughs> is, it, it, it's, it's a thing, and I wouldn't want to appropriate in in inappropriately. Um, I grew up in the U.S. Okay, I am a transplant. I am a dual citizen of South Africa and the United States, okay. but South Africa is is very much um, sort of my heart home. Um, okay. And after after a childhood in the U.S. and and growing up. Um, You know, you kind of like swallow the America propaganda that to be successful, you need to be in New York or L.A. And I kind of like the older I got, the more I was just like, I'm really not comfortable with this. And I remember when I went overseas for the first time to France, I was like, I've been lied to. Because it's like you get, you get, you get, you just get taught this narrative that America is the best place in the world and you're so lucky. And then you leave and you're like, wait a second, (laughs) you know, it's like really awesome everywhere else. Um, And, and there's pros and cons to everywhere. So in my time in South Africa, or when I first experienced South Africa, I was actually really humbled um, by how much I felt the US could learn from this country in terms of their approach to all sorts of things. Um, the obvious would be, you know, um the history of apartheid mm-hmm. and and relationships and dynamics between cultures and, and and race and race demographics, um, which, you know, the way South Africa has navigated that, really, I think the whole world can learn from and is quite powerful and profound. But as a filmmaker, when I started out and made my first film here, I just felt like if I was going to be the type of storyteller and the writer that I wanted to be, staying in my bubble and in a world that I knew that I felt safe in was not going to lead to the types of stories that interested me. I wanted to know what it authentically felt to be a fish out of water and know if I could, you know, manage to, to cope in an environment that was not familiar to me. And and that was my first like impetus to spend a lot of time here and then all of a sudden it became my home and you know 14 years passed. Uh-huh. And none of that was planned. It was just this country was such an experience and so educational and challenging in my growth as an as a as a filmmaker that it sort of gifted me a lot of things that I would not have gotten if I stayed in the in the U.S., not mm. least of which the fact that I was able to work in so many departments and grow as a director by doing so many different things mm. on very, very big film sets. I was never pigeonholed. I got to wear lots of different hats, and that has only strengthened um, what I can bring to any production that I work on because I've learned from from so many incredible talents who've all come to shoot here and local South Africans. And I think going back to your point about specific South African films that are worth seeing and all of that, I think what, what, what a lot of people internationally don't necessarily know is that a ton of international work shoots here. Like everything from massive like Hollywood studio films like Maze Runner or The Dark Tower or Resident Evil, which is Actually, independent, but it's still in that sphere of massive project to, to to smaller independent films the things like Black Mirror, like Homeland, like so many things shoot here. So our cast and our crews have insane amounts of experience um, uh, um, creating highbrow, high production value content for the global market, but accessing budgets um, for local work is much much harder, and that's why it's like we're sitting on this gold mine of potential without necessarily the finance and the support to deliver on it. And this new generation of filmmakers that's coming out with these incredible projects, it's based on that um, collective knowledge base and skill set from servicing all the international work and working with all the internationals that come here and growing and expanding on that and also rebelling against the cliche that to be a South African filmmaker, you need to tell a historical story or an apartheid story, being like, no, we (laughs) can tell whatever story we want and still be South African and still have a unique point of view, whether that be sci-fi or horror or, or any genre that you want to play in, um, or, or, or rom-com. Right. Um, I think that, you know, there's been a, quite a few projects that have like resonated and, and, and really left their mark. And there's a lot of exciting up and coming filmmakers. I mean, no more, there was, uh, Thirty-seven. Nocipo is amazing. Um, Gambit Films is a really exciting company. Indemnity is is playing in Fantasia um, this year, um, and they're a great group of people. Um, there's a film called Necktie Youth, um, which was sort of like the South African version of Kids in a way. That was quite something by um, by a director named Sibs, produced by Alice Ribeiro, um, which which was, was quite. Which was one of the first films that was like, we're just going to do contemporary South Africa, contemporary Johannesburg, what it's like for kids in Johannesburg today, and that was like so huge because it wasn't an apartheid story. <laughs> um, um, although, with that said, you know, stories that that build on that history and look at that, like Sotsi, where it's in, incredibly powerful, and Gavin Hood is a sort of a trailblazer in that regard as a South African director. So, I mean, I, I've been really inspired by by a lot of the. The old guard, but also the newer generation filmmakers that I've sort of grown up with over the last decade, and all of these people that are doing really well now, like like Michael Matthews and Sean Drummond who did Five Fingers from Mercy I watched them fight to make that film for like eight years while I was simultaneously fighting to try to make my first film. We went we went through the pain of that together, and watching everyone sort of manage to break out and get their things made at about the same time is like, it's an incredibly exciting. It, Thing because it's like we didn't know if we were ever gonna pull it off. We really didn't. We oftentimes were drinking, being like, "We're crazy. <laughs> like, this is so gonna <laughs> <better out." laughs> you know. So it's and 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 everyone's really supportive of each other. Like, I've been having a back and face- forth Facebook conversation with the editor of of Gaia and like I don't even think I mean think that we've maybe what met like or passed each other like ships in the night in real life but like the supportiveness in the industry of of of, of everyone doing well and getting somewhere because everyone's like knows what that fight is like and how hard it is is really something special here and I, I'm yeah I'm very grateful for that community helps you feel well, less insane sometimes
0: it's nice to, to hear that you're all so uplifting of each other Glasshouse is currently playing at Fantasia Festival. What does the future hold for the film?
3: I'm not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, All right. That's yeah, fair. Uh, yeah. No, it's a. Uh, uh, I, I will, I'm sure there will be announcements soon. <laughs> that's, that's better than, unfair. oh,
1: I have nothing to say. Like, we don't know what's yeah. going on. This is, this is a much better
3: alternative. <laughs> uh, no, it is, we are excited to be able to share that at some point. <laughs> Amazing.
0: Well, I hope I hope more people can can see this very soon because this is a phenomenal film uh, and, and you're an incredible talent. Kelsey, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to follow you or follow Glasshouse, the film, what is the best way to to do all of that?
3: Oh yeah. Um if they want to follow us, they can follow Kelsey.egan on Instagram. Um K-E-L-S E Y dot E G A N. That's my account. And I'm sort of just sharing all the glasshouse content um and uh ShowMax, um the south african uh force behind our financier and distributor are doing an um, incredible job with getting the word out on the phone um and but i i just reshare everything that they share essentially over the next like month or two they're going to be gearing up with their publicity
0: well excellent once again thank you so much for your time
3: thank you i really appreciate it. Thanks, it's great Kelsey. to meet you guys and lovely chatting thanks for the great questions
0: so yeah, that was, that was a fun one. Uh, she gave us a lot of information, uh, but I'm so happy that she she gave us the time to, to talk about everything in that. Uh, and I'm really happy. And I'm really excited for people to see this. It sounds like it's going to get some sort of a wider release, yeah, considering how exciting. mysterious she was about answering that question. So I hope this means that it's either going to get like a, a big distribution release or going to be playing at other festivals or something like that, where there's an opportunity for a wide audience to see this movie, because I think it's really going to find a home.
1: It's like really exciting to hear that because so many times when you when you ask that question of like so where's this movie going especially in a film festival, mm-hmm. so many times they're just like well we're still you know we're still looking we're still yeah. hopefully getting some we're distribution trying to have and...
0: distributors we're we're playing another exactly. festival coming up <laughs> uh, but yeah that's about it.
1: <laughs> so it's cool when she's being a bit more mysterious about it because it's mm-hmm. like oh well there's there's definitely something brewing and I love what she said too about um not wanting to pander to audiences, you know, Mm -hmm. like assuming the audience is smart because, you know, I think there's so many movies out there now that it just, everything wraps up in such a neat little bow for audiences and it's spoon fed along the way from the dialogue to the music to, you know, really obvious camera shots. Um, And I like that this one was, you know, it, it gave a little bit more, What's what's the word am I looking for? It gave a bit more credit. The audience is a little bit more credit, um, which I think more filmmakers should do. 100%.
0: Now, the next interview uh, I I did on my own. You, unfortunately, weren't able to join. But uh, it was a movie that we've actually covered before, and that's Alien on Stage. Mm -hmm. and Really, really fun movie for, for anyone that isn't familiar with this. This is a documentary about a group of bus drivers in Rural England, who decide to put on a play theatrical version of the film Alien, the 1977 horror classic, and how this group of people, notably the two directors among them, saw this play and was able to get them to put it on stage in London's West End. And now they're all like a uh, huge. Uh, uh, very well known in the the community uh uh, for putting on this production it's this movie is so much fun it's got so much heart and and you can't help but smile at it of of how enjoyable it was for everyone to be a part of this experience but i really enjoyed i got a chance to to talk with both of the directors and we had a really good opportunity but uh, we'd actually covered this movie back in south by southwest and both of us were a fan of it
1: Yeah. And I like that we were given an opportunity to watch it again. Um, Mm -hmm. I was really, because it starts with an A. So it was, it was kind of like the first one in the gallery, one of the first um, uh, thumbnails that popped up and I went, Oh, like shit, like we get to watch this again. That's amazing. Um, And yeah, I completely agree. And the same thing that we said in the South by Southwest episode, it's, it's a really, really heartwarming story and hopefully very inspiring to people, um, especially coming out of like over a year and a half of being in lockdown and, and having to deal with different varying degrees of quarantine and things like that. So I think it's it's such a great movie for right now of just, you know, achieve your dreams, even if it seems kind of not silly. I don't want to say silly because it sounds a bit degrading, but um, even if it seems very far-fetched, like, I don't think any of anybody who, you know, an amateur actor in Dorset who, you know, is a bus driver will ever think one day, oh, we'll be stomping on the boards at, at, on the West End, let alone mm-hmm. like right in Leicester Square. Mm-hmm. Um, but dream big. Cause yep. who knows? Like, who knows? <laughs> it's, it's it, like stranger things have happened in the world. So, um yeah I, I like i love this documentary happy that i got to watch it again really really gutted that i didn't get to make the interview because i would have loved to have talked to them um but yeah i'm like i'm sure you did a great job and i can't wait to listen to the interview too
0: well thank you well speaking of which here is my interview with danielle and lucy the directors of alien on stage
3: oh my god how are they going to do that
1: we all thought it was gonna be another pantomime and then somebody came
0: up with this idea. I'm Luke and I wrote it. Dave is my dad and he's also the director. Uh, my mum is also playing with me.
4: Calling Antarctica traffic control.
0: And my granddad uh, designed the set. Quiet chamber. Choir chamber.
4: Drivers involved, supervisors, engineers. With
2: An articulated mouth. Every alternative I've come up with, I hope has done what Ridley Scott would have wanted to do. But in a more basic format.
0: Today, we are joined by Lucy Harvey and Danielle Coomer, the directors of the documentary Alien On Stage. The film follows a group of bus drivers from Dorset, England, as they are mounting a theatrical production of the classic 1979 sci-fi horror film Alien. The success of their production allowed them to travel to London, where for one night only, they performed on stage in London's famous West End. The film is as much about celebrating underdogs as it is is about fandom. Lucy and Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both?
2: Great, thank you. Yeah, good, thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Can I ask where both of you are coming from since this is about Fantasia Festival, which is in Montreal? And I know you're not in Montreal right now. No, sadly
2: not. I'm in London, UK. I'm in Barcelona.
0: Okay, that's that's quite a bit of distance away from Montreal. Is there any sort of of sadness uh, that you're not able to be there at the screenings?
4: <laughs> There's quite a few reasons.
0: It, putting it lightly, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah, the, the cost and the restrictions.
2: <laughs> but I think, I mean, as far as, I'm not sure if it's changed, but we were told that it was going to be online only, but I think, is it not online online only now, the festival?
0: Uh, I believe it is uh I think they're doing some in person screenings for certain yeah. films, but not everything. I am in Vancouver, so I am not in Montreal as well uh so that's the only way I could see it.
2: yeah, no, I was very sad that um yeah, that we can't go it's uh it's the long list of lots of festivals we haven't been able to attend, but hopefully things are opening up. Some parts of the world soon ish.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I guess the first question I have for you is once you started this documentary, what was the most fascinating aspect that you learned about how Alien on Stage was put together as two people who just went as fans to see this production?
4: The most fascinating aspect of how it was put together, um, I think once we started to get to know the separate people and how they fulfilled their jobs that they were so magically suited to their role. Like it like each person, it was like it was meant for them to do that job. Like Ray, the granddad, was a builder, so he became the set builder and it just was like a natural progression. And Pete, the prop maker, made model cars and, you know, just desperately wanted to kind of like get involved and do it, do it, you know, like a proper project and turned his spare bedroom into a model-making studio and really got involved in the process. And Dave, being an ex-military man, just was so suited for the logistics of organising everybody and you know, everything that needed to be done. And then each person, the way they were cast for their role, somehow ended up being so suitable I don't know how they managed to get the casting so well if you think about them as a collective like they really did a good job choosing the right person for the role um and that's and it goes on like the lighting and the sound effects and the costume the the young crew who were doing that the the Luke the son and his girlfriend Amy and their friends they just and that- did a good job
2: how they were all able to just bring that together and make it work was was re- really fascinating as well because i don't think most people could be able to do that but they just seemed to to get it together and have it yeah. happen
4: and the icing on the cake was when you found out that how suited they were to all their separate roles that they'd never done before um that the stunt double sue rode a harley <laughs> davidson so she was like a kind of st- the only stunty person <laughs> in the group so it's just like magic
0: yeah that was a funny shot where i have watched this movie for the second time i first saw it at south by southwest during its first run there and then uh again for for fantasia festival and i forgot that when she she pulls up in her motorcycle she takes her helmet off i'm like oh that's right i forgot about that that's a great little touch that you included in there
4: yeah she's the stunt double sue and we love the fact that she's so used to carrying something mm-hmm. under her arm like that so She's got her cycle helmet under her arm a lot of the time. And then when she's on stage, she's got her fake head <laughs> under her arm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just kind of perfect.
0: Uh, speaking of all these different people, uh, one of the, the standouts from the actual production of Alien on stage is the innovative ways that Pete created different props on a limited budget using household products, particularly uh, the tail and using compressed air. Uh, did the grassroots method of, of production influence or inspire how you shot and edited the film at all?
4: yeah it inspired us because I think the influence was we shouldn't really care about our lack of experience (laughs) and if it looks a bit wobbly around the edges it shouldn't really be any of our concern we should just get on with it that was the inspiration and the influence
2: yeah totally they um they just had a way of just getting on with it and not letting their inexperience and lack of um know-how get in the way and as us as first-time filmmakers We did totally let that inspire us and just made that, made that we just, we just went with it and, and yeah, took inspiration from them. Totally.
0: The documentary is as much about you know, Dorset Bus Drivers and their production as it is about a small group of people who believe in what they're doing, raising both money and awareness about the play, and are able to get the theatre troupe the attention they deserve for their hard work. As both the people who helped bring the attention to the stage production to the masses and made the film about it all, how do you sort of reconcile how much to insert yourselves into the film?
4: The Inserting ourselves into the film was difficult at first. Danielle and I, couldn't quite reconcile whether we should be in it or not. And then we very quickly realized that there's no way we can't be in it because how will we tell the story? So we let go of that strange concept that we're somehow outsiders in this situation. And I think after the first day of filming, we stopped trying to ask them to ignore our presence, which is just insane. And then uh, everything flowed from then.
0: Yeah, there's a few scenes where clearly they're speaking directly to the camera and then they almost shift their focus to almost ask your opinion or get you involved a little bit. And and that's sort of where I noticed that that fourth wall was really breaking down between what's the difference between documentarian and co-star of a film. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, Luke, who wrote the play adaptation, apparently pitched versions of, of Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, and Tombstone, among some others. And do you think if it had been any of those that were chosen that either of you would have gone to see the show or would have become the hit that it was if uh, the alien eventually became?
2: I doubt it. I don't think those films have quite the same cult following that Alien does. Um, They're definitely as creative um, in many ways, but I think Alien is so unique in so many people having watched it and adored it from such a long time ago that it's sort of been around for so long and people have been so into it for such a long time. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say.
4: It really depends on whether... Um, the poster in the supermarket for Kill Bill, the amateur production, would have captured the attention of our friend. If he'd gone, oh my God, they're doing Kill Bill in amateur production. Let's find out more. Then we may have gone. But uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. so We, we can't say. <laughs> we only knew about them by accident.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if this group was to perform another classic movie... Do you have any favorites of uh, of what you would like to see them do?
4: <clears throat> I certainly do. From the offset, I tried to think what film is iconically famous and in everybody's subconscious mind has a really awful baddie that keeps appearing and killing people one by one and would be impossible to put on a small stage. Like the opposite of space is the ocean, and I think they should do Jaws.
0: <laughs> I'd watch that, Danielle. Do you have any uh, any thoughts of what they should work on next?
2: Um, no, I was just remembering. Uh, I think since you said that, Lucy, you know what? There is actually a show about behind the scenes of Jaws on the stage. <laughs> is there? <laughs> yeah, and I just remember seeing it the other day, and it's what happens when the f- when the cameras aren't rolling. So yeah, there's somebody's already doing it. So you weren't wrong in that being a good idea for a stage show. Um Yeah, I guess something, yeah, something with a big baddie is a good um thing. Something really serious and scary. Um I love the fact that they thought they, you know, things like the hills have eyes and tombstone. Um or did someone say the Exorcist as well? Uh, yeah, that <laughs> everything
4: did, they, they did seem keen on the Exorcist, didn't they?
2: Yeah. That um that would have been quite out there. But um <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. <laughs>
0: Uh after after watching the group prepare for the trip to London for their big performance there seemed to be some nervousness on behalf of David the director did either of you have any similar reservations about how the show would be received based on David's uh predilection to be a little more nervous
2: Yeah I think we were we were all quite nervous I remember filming backstage and literally having um huge butterflies and huge kind of nerves in my stomach, even though I wasn't going to go on stage, but I was just apathetically feeling their nerves. Um, And you just, you know, there was a big audience and there was a lot of murmuring and a lot of anticipation and you just didn't know what was going to happen. And a lot of, you know, a lot of what they did was, you know, sometimes based on a lot of luck of timings and places and there was an element for things to go quite wrong. Um, And yeah, it didn't. And everything seemed to fall into place on that night and it was pretty magical, but there definitely was (laughs) not 100% certainty that that would happen
4: yeah it we had faith that the audience would be behind them and in full support of them because that's the experience that we had when we first saw it um but you are afraid that you know there might be a sea change and people might be mean you know (laughs) like sneering or Perhaps, you know, like Danielle said, there were so many opportunities for stunts to go wrong or people to forget their lines. And if they'd kind of, if it had become shambolic, then it would have been a real shame. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. It was triumphant because they delivered everything on point with incredible style. And, you know, it, it just flourished and flowed. And it was brilliant. I was just so happy by the end of it. I was ecstatic. It was amazing.
0: Yeah. Was there especially some concerns where once you were finding out that was a sold out show, because then anything can really go wrong because, you know, you're you, the possibility of disappointing a large group of people, was that a, a concern there?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we had faith because we thought it was brilliant and I mean, we loved it. So we just had yeah. faith that we, we, we're not, you know, the, the human beings would feel the same as us. And we're, not, we're not unusual in that way. We just thought... It had universal appeal, and um, it does have universal appeal. We've got fans in Russia, Slovenia, Australia. You know, it's it's doing well. People love it.
0: (laughs) Well, good. Now... Horror and comedy often have many parallels, especially since they both rely on an element of surprise. There have been other successful horror productions that play up the comedy, like Rocky Horror and Evil Dead the Musical. Do you believe that Alien on Stage started out trying to be a straight horror, but then they leaned into the comedy once they realized what audiences were connecting to?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we not just believe it. We know it. Like, they they did have... An, they didn't have... They had no concept of how they were going to be received, so they were in their bubble, seriously focusing on doing the very, very best job they could to create a tense atmosphere with the effects and the lighting and the smoke machine and the strobing and the sound effects and you know the the, the stage adaptation that Luke wrote you know is as close to the film as he could possibly get with you know without making it fit on a stage. Um, and it's because of this, it's because they were in their world playing and not becoming self-conscious about what the outside world might think about them playing Alien, Um, it made it so incredibly special, like it made it so brilliant. So this backdrop of their serious uh, attempt at recreating it behind the scenes, like the crew that created the effects, made a very, very good job. And then the actors on stage are the local community group that have done one pantomime you know or one of them is an experienced pantomime actor so the contrast of them performing it made this really amazing combination that's so unique and watching it you you as an audience like I've never seen anything like this before like this is so bizarre and it wasn't until the audience saw it and started to enjoy it because it's actually getting a bit ridiculous with this kind of like pantomime style acting um that they realized it was funny and they had to sort of quickly adapt to the idea that it's popular people love it as in we do the (laughs) the small group that went to see them but it's funny and is that okay and they adapted to gracefully and were like yeah okay as long as you're enjoying yourself you know as long as people like it that's the most important thing and then they moved on and kind of like just enjoyed the process
0: nice uh Now I'm sort of curious, you actually use several clips from the actual alien film franchise. What was the process like to get the rights to include them?
2: Um, So we have um, a contact who's been helping us out um, very gracefully and we're in the process of yeah clearing, doing that. And it has, has been a bit of a process. Um, And yeah, we're, we're pretty much at the end of it now, hopefully, but it's, it's still in process. Um, so yeah, that was something that was a questionable when it was added, as to whether we would be able to keep it in the final version or not. Um, so fingers crossed, we can.
0: Well, I hope so because it really adds an element that connects the two productions together.
4: Yeah, it's wonderful that because we didn't have the confidence to to go that far with the, with including the original Alien clips. We did a we did one small clip and then and then. Um, our executive producer gave us the confidence and said, as Danielle said, I've got connections and I'm going to clear it. And they've reviewed our film and, you know, it's being green lighted. So we're, we're just waiting for the legal stuff to come through. So we're really, really lucky in that respect that we think it's going to be great. We're going to, we're going to be able to use it and it's not going to be a problem.
0: Oh, excellent. That makes me very happy to hear. Have you heard from anyone in particular that's been involved with the Alien franchise that has seen the film?
4: No, we've we've always had two degrees of separation from somebody who knows Ridley Scott or Sigourney Weaver, but we've never heard from them directly. So people have the film and have sent it to them directly, supposedly, but we've not heard anything from them
2: personally. We're still waiting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, fingers crossed. Now, is it too much to ask to power rank the actual Alien franchise? to power rank it. Yeah, what, what do you have a favorite out of all of them? Is the original your favorite? Do you have any fondness for any of the sequels?
2: I think my favorite was is always Aliens just cuz I watched it first. But then since working on this project I have had a deep love for the original Alien and we watched it with a a whole bunch of real alien academics and we were in an alien symposium in uh, in Bangor in Wales. Um, when we were sort of doing the process of the Kickstarter and stuff. And that was amazing. And that g- gave me a real window into the layers of that film and how you know widespread it is. Um, and, yeah, I have been watching the other ones, actually. I was going through them. But, um, yeah, those are the top two, I think.
4: Yeah, Aliens are one for me. I think I watched, is it Alien Resurrection, when, when Ripley's, like, playing basketball and and falls into the molten lava? With a alien inside her.
0: Oh, that—that's uh, Alien Three. Yes.
4: Is that Alien Three? Yes, yeah, so the David. Fincher I think that's one. as far as I got, and then it all got a bit much for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have you seen any of the newer ones, like uh, Prometheus and, and Covenant and, and stuff like that, over the last no, years? No,
4: it's it, it, no, it's not really my thing. It's terrible, <laughs> really, isn't it? I love Alien, but no, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. <laughs>
0: Absolutely understandable. Now, I'm curious, what is next for your film Alien on Stage after it's done playing Fantasia Festival?
4: We're waiting for the right distribution deal. So if in any chance somebody at Fantasia Festival is listening to this very thoughtful podcast, they can get in touch because we're still on the table. (laughs) we've had a few offers people are sniffing around so um we've yeah we've had sort of interesting offers actually um the nicest one is to possibly have an independent cinema run in parts of northern europe um but yeah that would be lovely
2: uh yeah, and then we've got, we've we've still got a few more festival festivals coming up, and hopefully, um, hopefully, we'll be able to actually see it at a festival and see it with an audience. Because although we've had the film screening in cinemas around the world, Lucy and I haven't actually seen the film together or with a live audience yet. Nope. <laughs> so we're really looking forward to that. Hopefully, in the next couple of months, yes. that will happen. Fingers crossed. But it, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a strange year to release a film. Um. But yeah, so watch the space. And anyone who wants to follow, you can go to our website, AlienOnStageDoc, and subscribe to our mailing list and find out information on our Facebook and Twitter as well.
0: You are so great Check at it. doing uh, my own segues. This is this is wrapping up the interview. Alien on stage is currently <laughs> playing at Fantasia Festival until August twenty fifth. Danielle and Lucy, thank you so much for joining me joining me today. And uh, like you already plugged, uh, your website. I'll make sure that's in the show notes for everyone to find, along with all the social media. So thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Dakota. Thanks for your time. Thank
0: you so much for having us. So there we have it. Those were our interviews that we were able to conduct through fantasia festival it's been it's been so much fun gained a chance to speak with some filmmakers about their work uh you can check out our reviews that we've been writing i've been posting them on contrazoompod.com and rachel you've been posting yours on Uh, Mm rachelkh.com but anything else that you've been working on that you want to share or plug rachel
1: Uh, I mean, I've just been busy with Fantasia Fest really, and then um, TIFF upcoming. So it's just been a lot of reviewing for different websites. And uh, hopefully by the time this goes up, I'm going to have a blog post on about why Suicide Squad didn't do so well at the box office. So just a little curiosity of mine, and I thought I would do that. So let's hope that that goes up. Otherwise, I'm just going to sound Really silly and quite lazy, that the fact that it didn't actually happen.
0: Well, either way, people should be bookmarking rachelcage.com so that way they can (laughs) check it whenever you post things, right? Exactly. Exactly. Obviously. (laughs) Well, you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And if you've been checking anything out during Fantasia Fest, send us an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you do like to listen to your podcast on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.